Today we're talking about one of the most anticipated movies of 2022, the end of the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Phase 4. We're talking about Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Welcome to the Extra Credits Podcast, where we search for meaning in your favorite movies and shows. I'm Trey. This is going to be a fully spoiler deep dive podcast today, so you've been warned. If you're a new listener, welcome. On the Extra Credits, my co-host Kelsey and I explore themes in movies and shows. We try to give extra credit to films that make observations about the world around us. And the majority of our conversations focus on exploring the themes of new and old films, trying to understand why the creators made their movies and what makes them meaningful. Before I get into Wakanda Forever, let's acknowledge the original 2018 Black Panther, beginning with one of the most important directors working in Hollywood right now, Ryan Coogler. This movie is also written by Ryan Coogler, co-written by Joe Robert Cole. Black Panther was such a difficult comic book to bring to life because there's, there's so much to this world of Wakanda. And also just the character of Black Panther just being as complex as T'Challa is, played excellently by the now-deceased Chadwick Boseman. He was electric, magnetic, physically restrained in a really emotionally intelligent way, a new role model for the MCU, and also surrounded by the support of this fully dynamic and developed group of women in leadership roles, like Denai Guerrero's Okoye and Letitia Wright Shuri, even Angela Bassett's Queen Ramonda as his mother and especially Lupita Nyong'o in the first film, at least, as Nakia. And then you have like Wakanda as this kingdom that is crafted as both a militaristic monarchy, but also this kind of egalitarian society. It's like an Afro-futurist fiction, which is the movie's greatest strength, I think, outside of Bozeman's work and the characters that surround him. Wakanda sort of evades being conquered by European empires and didn't endure the historical traumas that most African nations did. So Because colonialism and post-colonialism and decolonization aren't part of Wakandan history, there was so much on the screen that was new to audiences because you have this civilization that's separate from everything terrible that's happened in history over the past few centuries. And there's these interesting isolationist questions layered throughout the film, which theoretically I think makes Black Panther the most overtly political movie next to Winter Soldier and Civil War. And I think that might be why Black Panther is a top five Marvel movie for me and, and most people. And you know, when rewatching the original Black Panther before seeing Wakanda Forever, I started to remember how culturally and socially significant this film was. I mean, it's hard to forget. It was only four or five years ago, I guess, but you know, a lot's happened obviously in the world. But when rewatching it, you're like, wow, the stakes in this movie, there are no stakes as large as the original Black Panther anywhere seen in Phase Four. And maybe you can find them in Wakanda Forever, and they are there but they don't ever get to the heights of this film because the movie is like sort of emblematic of what could have been for African kingdoms if the transatlantic slave trade never existed. And obviously the movie didn't want to act as if it didn't exist. So we have characters to represent the tragic history of our world through Eric Killmonger played by Michael B. Jordan, this tragic antihero. And as a young boy, we're shown Eric radicalized by finding his father killed by his own people. And when we're shown Eric, as he gets older, he's referred to solely as Killmonger. He's been kind of molded by his hate, and he wants to monetize the Wakandan technology or vibranium at large, and he wants to give it back to underprivileged and exploited communities across the globe. 
but he also wants to use his powers that he got from the oppressors and kind of copy and paste this method of taking over other people's lives and avenge his ancestors this way. So he's sort of T'Challa's foil throughout the entire film, sort of resembling this friction of, of the oppressor versus the oppressed. And yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't think we ever get back to that, uh, that weighty uh, conflict because Killmonger challenges T'Challa for the throne. He wins and becomes king of Wakanda, but we learn that Killmonger is not the revolutionary leader that he acts as. Instead, we see him as this vengeful, full of hate and sad, um, really just distraught man. And T'Challa takes back the throne of Wakanda, but this time with the kind of the well-intended advice of Killmonger, all the best parts of that character. And he tries to, T'Challa tries to liberate communities across the world and, and take that philosophy and adopt it. Um, and Wakanda does this by becoming part of the United Nations, which is a large part of the introduction of the sequel. And, uh, you know, Wakanda is trying to build bridges, not walls. They want to focus on inclusion, diversity, immigration, global citizenship. There are incredibly powerful themes at the end of the original Black Panther that you're left with going into the sequel for Wakanda Forever that I had incredible hopes for the sequel going into it. And it was a good movie. I liked it. I'll just say that off the top and I'll get into um, why I might be a little bit lower on it than the original Black Panther. But, you know, there's just so much about the original Black Panther that makes it fully realized. Like the characters, for example, like I've talked about the woman, but everybody just feels fully developed in really authentic and genuine ways. And racism and colonialism are a reality of the movie, but they don't need to be necessarily spelled out. Actually, both films do that really well. And I guess ultimately the original Black Panther just sort of transcended the superhero genre to me. It really elevated the social responsibility of blockbuster spectacle movies. So in a sense, I think Black Panther was a revolutionary film, and it's not just action-filled escapist popcorn fodder on a Friday night. Not that much of the MCU is like that, but I feel like recently we've gotten a lot, especially since Endgame, a lot of films that do feel like they're just trying to fill theater seats. But this movie, this original Black Panther, really built bridges for conversations. And now with the recent passing of Chadwick Boseman and the pandemic, that's had such a large impact on everyone, but obviously disadvantaged communities that have you know, been disproportionately affecting people of color a sequel to Black Panther has this kind of impossible task of fortifying those bridges of conversation even more. And, you know, I'll say it now because we're going to deep dive this film and I'll get into my feelings on it. But I do have problems with the movie. This is a good movie, but it does have like some some obvious issues that I'm going to try to fully flesh out in this and try to actually go into it um, with good intentions. Because I think a lot of people have been talking about this movie as if it's emotionally impactful, but it doesn't fully work. And I want to find the nuance there and the don't doesn't really work part because obviously it's very emotionally impactful. And I'll get to that part of this um, deep dive. But I do want to get in, into the context of why people might have some critiques of this movie and maybe are struggling to find the words to explain why. So let's get into Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Just a reminder, we're getting into spoilers. Okay, so reactions from everybody across the globe. Critics have this at about an 84% on Rotten Tomatoes, 95% from audience. That's going to change, obviously, uh, but that's a pretty great score. Letterboxd has this at a 3.8 out of 5. Around 42,000 people have written reviews on this film. 
It's hugely popular. I think it's already grossed well over $300 million globally. And I think by the end of its run in theaters, it's going to gross well over a billion dollars and probably come close to the original Black Panther, if not more money. So it's incredibly successful. Now, quick plug here, uh, sort of a self plug. We're going to be starting a new segment on this podcast called Letterboxd Corner where we're going to read all of our followers' letterboxed reviews live on the show that they tag us in on social media. You can find our profile to our socials in the description. The idea here is that we love Letterboxd, and I use it quite often. (laughs) Uh, It's really the social media app I am the most happy when using, way more than Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, anything like that. Um, And I do run a lot of our social uh, for our podcast. And I just love going on there. And I like reading all of the deep dive essays people have on that app. And um, I like seeing what my followers and people I follow, what, what they're watching. I love seeing what they think about them, you know, what stars, what they're hearting, all that stuff. And we want to try to hear from our listeners more. We want to see what you all think about the movies you're all watching. If you have a review or if you just watch something and you want to share it with us on social, please do that. Go ahead and just tag us on Instagram or Twitter or DM us maybe a, a, a photo or a share link of your letterboxed review or whatever movie you're watching and we'll share it on the podcast and we'll talk about it quickly and and just note some of our reactions to the movies that you're talking about or you're watching. And I think there'll be a cool way to just communicate with everyone because uh, as we're kind of growing our audience here, um, there are so many different platforms that we use to talk to everybody and this could kind of create a a more focused way to communicate with all the listeners. It'll be a ton of fun. All right. So let's get into our reactions, me and Kelsey's reactions for this movie. So I saw Wakanda Forever twice in a row, first time by myself and then second time with Kelsey. Kelsey liked it about the same as I did, which I think actually, because we haven't really gotten a chance to talk about it in depth. I don't want to speak for her, but she obviously enjoyed it her first time watching it. And she did know it was pretty long in places where it probably didn't need to be because this does have an extra... 25 30 minutes added on to it than the the previous black panther film but like i said before i i like this movie a good amount and i was hoping i'd love it more the second time i should note i am very aware of i don't want to come off as snobby i don't want to be an asshole about this movie which is why i'm trying to do a beat by beat nuanced praise and also critique of what the movie is doing that's working really well in some places i wish it would have worked more well um so i just want to note that because obviously i'm like a solo uh white potting dude right now that i'm not really interested in having people listening to this and being like well what the hell does does this guy know i liked this movie i just need to note that and i think people will understand my you know frustrations with it so let's start off with a positive there's a lot of powerful strengths to the sequel there are some of the most interesting geopolitical conversations happening in all of marvel in the first act of this movie I really love that Black Panther has become uh, a series in MCU with a serious commentary that is also leading multidimensional characters. In this case, really complex black women who are not necessarily sharing similar views throughout the whole film. Like there was a lot of political and interpersonal conflict that Coogler and Robert Cole weren't afraid to explore, which is commendable and makes this movie even more historically relevant because the monolith or static black character that Hollywood so often creates is absent from this film, which isn't too surprising, obviously, considering the crew representing the story and its characters. But I needed to note that because it is really important, um, just historically. And then the added layer of the Mesoamerican people in this film as the Talacan community sort of symbolize an underrepresented Latinx community in film. These people of Talacan are 
led by Namor, which is played by Tanush Huerta, which I believe that's how you say his name. I've looked for it in many different places, and that's that's the name I've heard most consistently. So I apologize if I'm messing that up at all. Somebody let me know if I am. But that's Tanush Huerta, notably a Mexican actor. Um, I haven't seen his work before, but he is really great. I'm excited to see more of him. His character is kind of the draw of this movie, I think, which I'm surprised about because it's Black Panther Wakanda forever. But that's why Kugler is so genius because he's opening doors. And we'll, we'll get into that. What else? So there's great character development for even the smaller roles. And there is there are thematic elements that I think work really well together, like I said at the top. Even if some of the questions that were asked in the movie in the first act, I think were left pretty unexplored or had vague answers at the end of the film. I liked the fight scenes. The fight choreography was really great, especially at the beginning. The CGI was better too. There's also this like parallel edited fight sequence that's happening in the first act during a UN meeting. And that's probably the coolest fight scene I've seen in in all of phase four next to some Shang-Chi sequences. And yeah, the performances are really good. The standouts will be Angela Bassett, I think, as Queen Ramonda and Letitia Wright as Shuri. And I think my personal favorite performances start with Winston Duke as M'Baku. He's becoming one of my low-key favorite actors working right now. Denai Gurira as Okoye was, I think, an emotional heartbeat of this movie. And like I said, Tanush Huerta as Namor, excellent. So all those characters and, and performances were all very interesting and, and very well acted to me. I think M'Baku, going back to him because I want to, because uh, I don't know if I'll talk about him too much when we go beat by beat into the story. He got the most laughs from the theater. And like I said, I think Okoye is kind of like the emotional rock and you could feel the gravity of the story when she was having a moment. And then Namor is, I think, just as as effective as Killmonger and is probably, again, going to be everyone's favorite character for how, you know, audiences relate to his character, but also how complex his story is and how tragic his life is. But unfortunately, positives aside really quickly before we get into beat by beat of this film, this movie does feel weighed down by all the difficult challenges or obstacles it faces. I think the biggest one being that Chadwick Boseman's passing lingers on in this movie, and it's almost like the film is trying to be a farewell to Chadwick Boseman while also trying to be thematically nuanced, like how the first Black Panther was, and something, and while also introducing a whole new civilization and character to the film that is going to bring in a whole new community of storytellers to come to the MCU, which I'm I'm really excited about. But there's too much going on, and I think that's what brings the movie down for me a little bit and you know i've seen critics blame the film's struggles on side plots with riri williams's characters ironheart played by dominique thorner who is a great newcomer to me so i have no problem there she is like some of the best comedic timing since i've seen i guess since peter parker like tom holland as peter parker in captain america civil war like there was incredible comedic timing there and with dominique thorner we get a very similar kind of sequence in the college dorm room and people have also critiqued maybe having Martin Freeman in the movie too much or Julia Louis-Dreyfus in the movie too much. But I don't have a problem with these extra sequences, even though they sometimes can feel bloated. To me, it's more about like what we didn't get. And the person we didn't get enough of, even though there was a, a narrative reason why we didn't, was Lapita Nyong'o's character, Nakia. Like Lapita Nyong'o is literally one of the best actors in the entire world right now. And both me and Kelsey turned to each other at one point in the 
film and we're like, is Lupita Nyong'o the most beautiful person working right now in Hollywood too? Like, how is she not getting more screen time here? Because she fills the emotional weight that I feel like is missing from this movie every time she's on screen. And obviously there's a narrative reason for why she's not. And we find out in the mid credits, but whatever, you know, those nitpicks aside, Ryan Coogler is still making one of the most thematically important movies in our culture right now. And he's doing that at such a high level that's hard not to support this movie. Black Panther, both films take wild swings in their messaging. And also on the more literal side of things, Coogler, what he's doing with the business of Marvel, he's trying to build a more inclusive MCU and to to not support the movie is basically missing the point of the movie's existence. Like if you're like, ah, this isn't really my thing. Like, what are you talking about? This movie is opening doors at the very least for new voices. And to be like, this is just a superhero movie, you're like totally missing the point, the cultural significance of, you know, huge big budget movies like this. Like I always go back to the end scene of Black Panther, which is my favorite scene, maybe of any movie in the MCU which is when T'Challa is on the basketball court in Oakland, I believe, and a kid walks up to him and he's like, I think he says something to the effect of like, who are you? And T'Challa just like smiles at the kid and then the credits drop and then the music starts. It's such an emotionally impactful movie because you can, you can tell what Coogler is doing. Like he's not, it's not like he's taking a break from uh, films like Fruitvale Station. He's trying to build more platforms than just him. And you have to, acknowledge that it's so important but going to some critics and like what they wanted out of this movie before we jump into this b by b from what i understand critics wanted black panther to be more like a sequel maybe like captain america winter soldier as the sequel where you're having espionage as the main theme or people talking about political corruption and dark rooms a really focused idea of what you want to do with the movie and bring it back to cl- closed rooms and not as much action but this movie is with leads whose identities are actively still marginalized by Hollywood and elite culture. So this story does not have the same margin of error first or narrative freedom second as a Captain America movie or an Iron Man film, obviously. Hopefully people get that. So those movies like, you know, got to represent single characters with clear motivations and a singular theme even per film. Basically very low stakes were involved in many of the Captain America and Iron Man films. But with Wakanda Forever, and Coogler, you kind of feel that they have the weight of many different identities on their shoulders in the United States. And they're trying to open doors for so many groups of people, not just in the US, all over the world, through different films and television shows that they're trying to kind of sneak in 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 the movie. And it's all happening at the same time of dealing with this loss of Chadwick Boseman. And you can, you know, I've listened to, and I recommend people go listen to this, but the podcast of Ryan Coogler speaking with ta Coates about how difficult it was for him to make this movie. And you can feel the emotion in his voice at times about how, how stressful it was. And, and all that to say, like the main demographic that is buying movie tickets is still white audiences in the United States. And so you still have to make this movie accessible and digestible. You don't have to, but the movie is for all, all audiences to want to buy tickets. And Coogler is doing what T'Challa was saying he was going to do with Wakanda at the end of the first film, which is, Coogler's building bridges for new storytellers in the MCU. And, and that is just incredible. And he, I don't think he honestly gets enough credit for that. I see too many articles about when's Coogler going to write, you know, and direct his next indie film, indie project. Why doesn't he leave the MCU? It's like, what? Why are you trying to pigeonhole my guy? Like he gets to open so many doors by 
playing in the MCU that why can't he do both? Why can't he make future Fruitvale stations movies like those themes that he wants to keep exploring and interrogating while also creating new avenues of success for people who have not been given the opportunity before in Hollywood or in the entertainment industry at large. So, you know, I just wish people would support the movie just from the jump, just for existing, because I feel like people are trying to compare it at the level of other sequels in the MCU, and they're just dealing with completely different stakes. All right, so usually I would just jump into themes in our podcast, but I'm going to deep dive this movie beat by beat, because I don't want to say, you know, an important movie like this was just eh, pretty good. I want to explain some of my thoughts and give this story the nuance it deserves. So we're going beat by beat, unpacking this film together. Let's do it. The film begins with Shuri praying in an elevator, telling her ancestors that she'll never again question their existence if her brother T'Challa survives, which kind of signals our first theme of faith and grief, which acts as a sort of through line of this movie. Shuri has a crisis of faith after a loved one's death, which is interesting because that crisis sort of represents the cast, crew, and audience because the movie acts as a farewell to Chadwick Boseman, sometimes maybe even more than Black Panther the character. And Shuri's prayers are left unanswered and T'Challa dies. And it's a pretty tragic, silent opening with the Marvel crawl showing images of Chadwick Boseman through all of his Marvel appearances as T'Challa. And both my theaters were silent when seeing this twice. And you could feel the emotions at a high level already. I'm not sure the movie gets to that high again until the end of the film. But regardless, I was obviously in big tears. (laughs) I am an emotional movie watcher, so... Um, and obviously Chadwick Boseman was one of the best actors and one of the more incredible people in Hollywood, uh, and more than just a, a celebrity or actor, um, truly like a really seem, seemed like a really good person. And so that was a, that was quite the moment, um, of a shared experience in a theater emotionally that I haven't, I don't think I've felt before. So that was interesting. And then a year passes in the film and we cut to a UN meeting where Queen Ramonda explains to the United States France and other countries that vibranium is not a shared resource and that any attempt at exploiting and terrorizing Wakanda will essentially be an act of war that they will regret. And a pretty, you know, compelling uh, monologue that she's giving to the UN. And one of the UN French ambassadors is arguing with Queen Ramonda that Wakanda has a responsibility to share vibranium with the rest of the world. And there's this interesting parallel edit going on where we see a team of military operatives breaking into a Wakanda outreach center in Mali. And this is probably the sickest action scene in the movie. I think it's maybe even inarguably the most well-edited and best action scene in Marvel since No Way Home, which is pretty awesome. During the fight scene, you have like this incredible choreography going on, but at the same time, quick edits to the debates uh, with this all this Wakandan-themed music in the background. It really is setting the tone for Queen Ramonda explaining to the United Nations that the French have already tried stealing their resources, and it's just a really badass sequence because it kind of represents how powerful countries like our own have operated in imperialist ways to take down the economies of growing or developing nations. So tonally, the movie is working on a, a really high level for me, not just cinematically, but thematically. It's incredibly impressive 15 minutes in. And at this point, I'm like really ready to go on this thematic journey <laughs> of everything from the first Black Panther, but elevated. And then we're introduced to this large ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean where the American government is using this vibranium finding machine to search for the resource and 
we meet the soldiers of the Talakan kingdom, also known as the Talakanil people. And this kingdom basically kills everyone on board the ship in a very winter soldier-esque sequence that was low-key pretty brutal, considering that everyone's drowning, I believe, because there's like this sonic way that they kill people with this siren song where people are jumping off ship and diving into the ocean, never coming above water again. And I love the mystery and eeriness behind all of that. We also see that the Talakan people are blue, and I've seen people say that it's difficult to fully buy in because Avatar is coming out, but that didn't affect me at all because we're not really Jim Cameron Avatar people, just, you know, Avatars and The Last Airbender and Korra, shout out my uh, Avatar, The Last Airbender people out there. But okay, so we're getting a lot thrown at us at this point in the plot in, in the Atlantic because I was really excited to see the intergovernmental tensions and possibly the UN versus Wakanda story take off. But then we're introduced to this new civilization, which I didn't buy in right away. I bought into the mystery of it, but then I was kind of like annoyed we didn't go right back to the interesting, you know, dynamics before in that UN argument. So as we're taking all this in, I'm I'm pretty curious, but after the Atlantic and this mysterious figure throwing a helicopter into the ocean, we immediately return back to Wakanda with the Queen for T'Challa's funeral. And Wakanda immediately, it's very clear, looks way better than it did in the original Black Panther. The CGI is really improved in the last five years since they made the original Black Panther. And like I said before, the fight choreography was also really improved too. So those are the two big complaints from the original Black Panther that are way better in this film. We even got some cool added details to Wakanda, like through the Wakandan force field gate. I think they're using a djembe drum to open it up, which is pretty interesting. And at this point, I'm getting like huge Phantom Menace vibes as we're entering Wakanda again for the first time since uh, 2018, because at the core of Black Panther is, I think, the intrigue of this hidden kingdom. It almost feels nostalgic because I'm getting a lot of that uh, Star Wars Phantom Menace vibe. And I see a lot of Star Wars in the Black Panther movies. Actually, quick tangent, I think I already noted, but I listened to the Black Panther Marvel podcast where Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, speaks to Ryan Coogler about the film. And Coogler said that Chadwick Boseman wanted Black Panther to be like the new Star Wars, something to that effect, which is wild because both Black Panthers have so many threads of specifically Phantom Menace. If there's any Star Wars fans, maybe you know what I'm talking about. So aside from that tangent, <laughs> we start seeing some family drama and tension in Wakanda where Ramonda is asking Shuri about her suits and AI. And basically it's just a mother checking on her daughter because of the death of Shuri's brother, T'Challa. And we've been told it's like a year since his death and Shuri kind of deflects any emotional response. And there was this interesting monologue about the mantle versus the individual that Shuri has, which I think is another theme in this movie. Shuri talks about how a year ago, she was trying to save the individual that was T'Challa, her brother, not the mantle that is Black Panther. She wasn't interested in, in saving the symbol. And this almost felt like Coogler explaining to the audience how this movie is more about the death of a real-life iconic figure in Chadwick Boseman more than it was about Black Panther. Even though the MCU character arguably is larger than a single life itself and means so much to people in different ways, uh, I, I do respect the fact that he did that with Chadwick because you know not everyone will like the idea that this movie is more about individual people coming to terms with mortality of our loved ones more than this superhero figure. But I did think it was smart on his part because Wakanda Forever is more interested in opening the doors to other communities 
and building bridges for more storytellers all over the world than it is interested in solely Black Panther as a symbol of the MCU or as a as a character or even just Wakanda as a kingdom. It's it's obviously more fascinated with real life than it is the fantasy of it all. And then to top off Shuri's conversation with her mother, like it already wasn't a thematically fascinating conversation, Shuri says that her mother's relationship to T'Challa's spirit is a construct of her mind so she can feel comfort and joy. And on the surface, this seems like a very almost like secular theme going on, like religion versus science, which we really haven't seen at all in Marvel, except maybe some Thor satire in the Love and Thunder film. But deeper, I think it's a nod to the audience that Shuri is still grieving. In no way, I think, does this film explore atheism or the battle of science versus fundamentalism. It's more about Shuri's loss of faith and her spirituality that is being lost because she's grieving T'Challa's death. And in response to Shuri, Ramonda tells her daughter, well, what construct does your mind breed when you think of your brother? Does it offer you comfort or torment? Which is pretty powerful because Ramonda is like, you can critique my spirituality all you want and my choice in, in believing in our ancestors and the ancestral plane, but it keeps me stable and it keeps me filled with purpose and hope, which even as a non-religious person myself, I found pretty beautiful and you know, more, maybe more on the second watch than I did the first time because I was trying to just, I guess, deal with what's going on in this scene. I was struggling to see if this was like, I'm like, is Ryan Coogler making an atheist comedy here? Like, what's going on? But no, that, w- that wasn't what was going on. So I, th- I found that fascinating. So as this chapter of the movie fades and the first act begins to end, you're starting to realize, oh, this movie is not about geopolitical tensions necessarily. It's more interested in coming to terms with mortality and mourning Chadwick Boseman, as well as introducing a new civilization, the Talakan. Obviously, the geopolitical tension is there, though. I don't want anybody to hear what I'm saying and being like, what are you talking about? It's obviously there. Like, I'm going to talk about it a lot today because that's my biggest issue with the movie is that it doesn't fully develop the ideas it has about the political tensions between Wakanda, the Talakan, and then the powerful nations that control the UN. And, um, you know, I did want the movie to go more than surface on that idea. I think we actually took a step back from the themes of the first Black Panther. I wanted this movie to expand on the colonist imperialism themes of the first film. And it definitely had moments of interrogating those ideas, especially in the first act and maybe in the final bit of the first, the last act. And it did a great job introducing this new civilization with its own history and troubles. And I'll get into more of that, why it didn't completely work for me um, and why the international conflict stuff also didn't work that well to me. but. The second act begins where Ramonda and Shuri go to burn their clothes from the funeral outside the walls of Wakanda, I believe. And as Ramonda tells Shuri why they're really there together, not just to burn their their funeral outfits, but it's really because Ramonda wants to tell Shuri something about T'Challa. And out of nowhere, we're quickly introduced to the new anti-hero antagonist of the film, Namor, who flies out of this river with these cool winged feet, which is a pretty cool design. And Namor from the comics is the submariner who is apparently like this established character I don't know much about. I've read comics, but I'm not uh, deep into them like people who might be listening to this right now. So Namor tells Ramonda and Shuri that T'Challa exposed Vibranium. And by doing that in the original Black Panther, T'Challa compromised Talokan and Namor's people. And that it's only fair if Wakanda helps Talokan with this UN dilemma of this Vibranium-seeking machine in the middle of the Atlantic that Namor and his people had to take out. So Namor basically wants the Wakandans to find the vibranium detector that the Americans had in the Atlantic Ocean and then to kill the scientist who created it. 
And Ramonda is like, nah, we're good. Thanks, though. But Shuri tells her mom that Namor is covered in vibranium, meaning he's a threat. And they thought this resource was very specific to Wakanda. And then Namor tells them both that, listen, I don't care if you don't want to be involved in this because the Talokan have more soldiers than Wakanda has Blades of Grass, which is maybe the most badass one-liner in all of Phase 4. This whole scene is interesting because thematically the nuance of imperialism between the way these two kingdoms have been forced and pitted against one another is fascinating. Kugler and Robert Cole are sort of interrogating the complexities of powerful nations like the ones in the UN who have their stability in the UN because of what they've done to other nations like the Talokan or Wakanda. And right now, these two kingdoms that were once isolated are now being kind of exploited to go against one another. And because they have not joined the capitalist globalization philosophy of the rest of the world, they are now pitted against one another. Like the UN knows it can't put its countries in jeopardy or take the political risk of forcing a massive war. So instead, they're trying to pressure these kingdoms of Wakanda and the Talokan so that they're forced to fight one another. And then the theme here is, you know, pitting the oppressed against one another through economic and military pressures will inevitably lead to both of the kingdom's downfalls, probably. And that will allow the oppressor to evade. Like people understand this stuff, I think, which is why hopefully people bought into the themes of the movie, which this conflict is actually why the movie is just good. I think that's why the movie's good is because of this conversation and why this movie annoyingly could have been, I think, great because I don't know if this conversation is ever fully investigated further. And I think that we probably could have gotten a whole movie that was really based around this idea of two kingdoms being aware that they were being pitted against one another and to kind of fight back against the countries that be in the UN that are kind of leading them to this place of conflict. And I thought that's maybe where the third act was going to go, but it doesn't even really go there. Or at least maybe some people saw it that way. I don't, I didn't see it that way. Anyway, so after this scene, the tension in Namor's argument is then kind of cut in half by having a laugh out loud sequence where Queen Ramonda explains to her Wakandan government who Namor is and what his kingdom wants. And you have M'Baku telling Okoye that she's a bald-headed demon, and that gets the laugh out loud reaction from the theater, which is deserving even if it's a cheap laugh. But the tension from the previous scene and the thematic elements weaved throughout seem to be quickly lost or at the very least pushed aside. And that kind of like I don't know, break from exploring the geopolitical conflicts that are caused by imperialists kind of reduce the rest of the story for me because they keep doing that throughout the rest of the movie. They keep going back and forth with what kind of movie they want to show and what kind of story they want to tell. And look, I'm not trying to be too harsh because I, I like this movie and I'm, not every Marvel film is held to such high standards thematically, which I am trying to be aware of and telling listeners I'm trying to be aware of this too. But another example of this irregularity in the story's themes and questions is in the ne- literally the next scene where Okoye is struggling to understand how another civilization could have vibranium because the Wakandan religion has parables that explain why the vibranium meteorites chose their lands and how these stories are seared into Okoye's mind. And then you have Shuri replying to this kind of ethnocentrist adjacent awakening from Okoye by saying that having those mythologies seared into Okoye's mind must be very painful, which is another funny moment, but it raises some incredibly powerful questions about the ethnocentric beliefs of every isolated nation around the world. You know, like these are fascinating questions about cultural exceptionalism that the writers could have held on to longer and investigated even further. 
there was so much in that moment and it felt like I was getting pulled in and then immediately pushed out of anything thematically rich. So instead of continuing with that conversation, we transitioned to Okoye, talking to Queen Ramonda, into letting Shuri go on this mission to find the scientist for Namor so that you know Shuri can get some fuel time and get out of her lab and, and take a break because they're both worried that Shuri keeps trying to escape her emotions in her lab. So Okoye and Shuri go to meet Everett Ross, played by Martin Freeman, who is now legitimately a side character in the Black Panther series that probably gets a little bit too much screen time. Uh, but like I said at the top of the pod, I don't think it's that big of a deal. But his character is sort of a stand-in for the American government, so I kind of like him, and the story needs him for that reason. And his purpose is to connect the imperialism uh, to Wakanda and Talokan issues. But again, that connection never really fully develops because he's really just an ally. And even when the CIA kind of figures out what he's doing and and Julia Louis-Dreyfus's character knows what he's doing, they don't really fully develop that arc. Anyways, we find out who the Vibranium Machine Scientist is from Ross. And it's a character named Riri Williams, who's played, like I said, really well by Dominique Thorne. We later find out that Riri isn't just a genius, but she's also our next Iron Man figure named Ironheart. I don't know much about Ironheart, but I don't think it was said in the film either. But MCU heads know and you know Disney Plus has said that they're having an Ironheart show. And I think it's in post-production right now. So it's going to be coming out pretty soon. And we get this whole sequence of Shuri and Okoye and Riri's dorm room. And it's, I think, the funniest scene in the entire movie. <laughs> and uh, the, both my theater reactions were incredible during this, this sequence in the dorm room. And yeah, Okoye really just steals the show uh, in multiple different scenes in this film. So the next 15 to 20 minutes with Shuri, Okoye, and Riri, they, they basically become the Fast and Furious, Mission Impossible, James Bond uh, adjacent homage sequence that we got from the first Black Panther at the casino. If people remember that part of the movie, that's probably the second or third best part of the Black Panther film to me. But the first Black Panther did their scene with a lot more style and confidence in the casino and car chase. And I think a little bit better music too. So that helped a lot in the theater. And there's something about the car chase in this movie, Wakanda Forever, as well as the Ironheart chase in the sky that felt kind of kitschy, like almost like a TV show. But still, I'm not going to take points off this movie for doing that because we do have a new character in Ironheart and Coogler, like I said over and over again, and now is creating avenues of success for different stories. So I'm here for it, even if it's not always seamless, which that's all, kind of all an audience can ask for, I guess. I'm still going to credit Coogler because I think this is how you take advantage of playing in an IP pool like Disney and Marvel. So the chase sequence ends with another Winter Soldier, Black Widow-esque scene on the bridge where the Talokan soldiers try and take Riri and, and Shuri is passed out in this moment. So Okoye fights most of them off with a pretty dope fight sequence and Okoye ultimately loses, but Shuri awakes and tells the Talokan to take her with Riri if they need to take Riri to Namor. So they do, and they go to their homeland, um, the Talokan people's homeland, and they go to speak with Namor. So ultimately loved the college dorm room part of this whole sequence. And I love the the fight scene and the choreography on this bridge with the tension and the great music. But I think we could have just made all that a little bit shorter and the movie would have felt a little bit cleaner. Again, just small notes, just mo trying to make this movie more like two hours 15 instead of two hours 40. I'm not one of those people who hates long movies. I quite like long movies. Like The Batman is one of my favorite films this year in my top 10 or top 15. But something about this just didn't feel as seamless. And I, and I think it might maybe sometimes long movies can be asking a lot of the audience if not everything feels like perfectly, you know, edited together. 
And yeah, so the next morning pops up and we cut to another comedic scene where Everett Ross finds Shuri's tech beads that are like this communication device. And we're introduced to the head of the CIA, Valentina Allegra de Fontaine. I'm just going to say Julia Louis-Dreyfus. And <laughs> we learn that Ross was married to Dreyfus's character, which was kind of a weird addition to the plot. Again, I know we're being set up for more Disney Plus shows by all this extra MCU corporate exposition, but whatever. Then we're literally sent back to Wakanda. So we're going back and forth a lot. And Angela Bassett as Queen Ramonda gives, I think, the most powerful monologue of the movie. Not to me, I think just to most people. And I'll explain why in a second. It's the have I not given everything speech, which in the trailer I thought was going to be said to the UN, which would have made sense because the powers that lead the UN are supposed to be subtextually, metatextually representing European slave trading empires. But instead, Queen Ramonda is just kind of reprimanding Okoye in this moment. And the queen essentially fires Okoye for not bringing home Shuri. And the scene is really odd in that way. And people's reaction to this feels kind of misplaced, which I get why people are excited about this scene for the great acting, but the character decision makes literally no sense because while maybe the speech sometimes feels deserved and looking back at it because in the first Black Panther, Okoye stays with Killmonger because when he takes the throne, that is like a part of her duty um, as the Dora Milaje and that angered Ramonda. But Okoye was following the rules of this flawed institution, the monarchy that Ramonda literally benefits from. So the speech felt deserved but also oddly not at the same time like contradictory like ethically it felt completely misplaced like for example let's say Nakia okay Lapita Nuango, who we haven't talked about a lot but I did note at the top one of the best actors working today let's say Nakia gives that speech about losing everything and maybe we found out about young T'Challa at the beginning of the movie and it really did feel like Nakia probably lost everything because that is you know T'Challa's father and it would have made sense because Nakia didn't believe in this royal lineage, or at least were led to believe that, or the Wakandan government, because she worked outside the state to help others across the globe who needed support. She's kind of an outsider of Wakanda, and we're, I think, also led to believe that's what led to some conflict between her and T'Challa's relationship pre-Black Panther in 2018. And she's really the only outsider from the Wakandan establishment that we meet in the entire series of movies now. So I don't know. A speech like that from Nakia to Ramonda, let's say, and the rest of the Wakandan institution would have made more sense to me, even if we did get this incredibly persuasive, Oscar-worthy Angela Bassett, you know, performance in this movie, in this monologue. It was just really contradictory to everything politically Black Panther is supposed to represent. And they can't ever fix that now. It's like, I think it's an actual mistake in the movie. It doesn't thematically make any sense because not to jump too far ahead, but Ramonda's dead and her death is incredibly tragic the way it happens and very random. It reminds me of a Spider-Man death, not to spoil that movie if no one's seen it. Um, you know, skip 10 seconds here, go ahead and skip. But Spider-Man's, you know, aunt dies and Aunt May dies and that came out of nowhere, but it still had some kind of significance. It was his Uncle Ben moment. Hello, everyone, if you're back. Uh, but this movie doesn't feel like there is a moment. Like Shuri sees Ramonda, her mother, dead. And that kind of is the incentive for her to be try to figure out how to become Black Panther. But it just, I don't know, something felt off about the Ramonda arc in this movie, especially, especially that speech. It felt really wrong because the monarchy is so problematic, especially a very timely discussion right now because of everything that's happened with the Queen and Great Britain recently. And like, it just would have been really interesting uh, for them to go that way and explore that idea. 
Anyways, that was one of my biggest nitpicks of the movie. So back to the story. After Okoye loses her positions, I think, we immediately, oddly enough, cut back to Nakia's storyline. And Ramonda finds Nakia as a school administrator of sorts in, in Haiti. Ramonda tasks Nakia with finding Shuri and Talokan. So again, we're leaving yet another place very quickly. And I kind of liked being in Haiti and the whole school of it all and the children. And now we're in Talokan and there's some funny banter between Riri and Shuri. It feels like we're in like an Avatar of the Last Airbender set or something. And a really funny joke uh, about being offered a dress happens where I think it's Riri who says, don't take a dress or any kind of like gown from your captor because Shuri is offered this gown from the Talokan people. And uh, <laughs> Riri says that's like Princess Leia being offered one or Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Or she says the white chick from Indiana Jones. <laughs> which is Marianne, I guess. Uh, that's great writing. It feels like a woman added that in. That was incredible. Which, by the way, I'm curious if we can get women to actually help write these scripts. That would be awesome because this is a woman-led movie. And even though the film is well-written and characters are well-developed, it just feels like men wrote the characters, even though they did an incredible job, better than most men who've written woman characters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Because all the women's motivations in these movies, or this movie, feel like they're out of, um, I don't know, motivations out of power and grieving but only as kind of like men grieve which is historically through vengeance and destruction i guess whatever but regardless the women are complex in this story and that's very good writing at the very least so shuri meets namor one-on-one in talokan and he explains his life and beginnings as this mutant which is the first time we've heard the word mutant in the mcu which is huge for x-men i'm here for it. i'm a big x-men guy in this flashback from namor we're shown a mesoamerican 16th century sequence where we see how Namor was born, his power origin story with his mother, and how his people were forced to hide in the ocean. And this is like an un- unquestionably, I think, interesting flashback that felt like a film in its own right. We're shown Namor living his, you know, through the centuries, aging very slowly, outliving his mother even. And he goes back to his homeland seeking, um, I think, some kind of like retribution for being forced to go into the ocean. And what he finds is worse than what he could have ever imagined, which is, European colonizers, Spanish conquistadors, destroying the lands and their people through slavery and disease. So Namor and his people kill the colonizers, and he's named by, I think it was a Spanish priest of sorts, and I believe they named him Namor because that meant son of Satan. Anyways, pretty wild flashback, but again, thematically and tonally, there is an imbalance because there's so much to say with these flashbacks and the geopolitical concerns and conflicts. But then we're back to Talakan with some funny but cheap jokes and Namor is joking about like suits that they ha- they had for Shuri. And now he's showing Shuri his home and something just feels off. Plus underwater people just doesn't work for me and Kelsey in movies. Like I, I don't wanna speak for her, but I think we both kind of looked at each other like, like, ugh, I, like more people holding their breath underwater where it looks like they can't say anything because they're literally underwater. Sometimes the practical effects underwater just don't work for me. And um, I know that's mostly us. People seem to love those scenes. They aren't, they can be cinematic, but to me, like they aren't usually because it just looks like someone is <laughs> borderline about to drown underwater, like trying to act. And uh, even though the city was obviously really creative and authentic, and I'd love to see more of it in its own film. Just something about the practical effects of being underwater throws me off always. Like even the Little Mermaid trailer, something about that threw me off. In the way of the water trailer, I feel like I'm not seeing anybody underwater. And I think that's probably purposeful because those are parts of the movie that kind of throw me off in the first Avatar movie too. Anyways, luckily we got more interesting dialogue 
after Talokan, which was these geopolitical conversations continuing with Namor telling Shuri when they're back kind of like in a, a space where she can talk. He wants to wage war on the world, and he argues that Wakanda needs to help. He explains how there isn't a nation that would plunder Wakanda or Talokan if given the chance, but if they team up together as allies, they'll be able to take everyone else down because they share similar, I think, cultural wounds. And so, therefore, there's like an incentive for both of them to care about one another's history, their present, and their future together. So, you know, this is kind of where I'm out on the movie a bit. Like, that's definitely historically interesting and significant, but I don't share the opinions that people are saying Namor is a really good antihero because he has a point, like all antiheroes need to have. I've heard a ton of people say that Namor has a, has a point because he has like some kind of logic to his rationale. And I'm like, does Namor really have a point? Like we've heard from him and his people that Wakanda has never even met the Talokan. So to me, Wakanda is sort of being exploited here. They're the loser in this scenario and they're being exploited by the UN and Talokan. Like they have to either give up their culture and resources to the rest of the world by fighting the controlling powers of the UN, or they risk being murdered by the Talokan, all while still grieving their king and dealing with the power vacuum of their unstable monarchy, which is already a messed up government. So I don't know. There's no point in this movie that I'm like, oh, wow, the Talokan and Namor have a point. Like, obviously, their story is tragic, and they too are victims, much like the Wakandans, to the powers that be. But I didn't buy into the idea that the Wakandans had a responsibility to support Talokan. But I guess I'm like in the minority there because everyone I've listened to or read about has said that he had a point in arguing this. So I don't know. You know, the the ethnic racial meta text there, though, does make a lot of sense, more sense than the actual narrative structure of it all. And I, and I guess I'll go into that in a, in a little bit. But like the Talokan have a point to live in isolation from a terrible and exploitative world run by fascists. but not really a point by being their own worst enemy and taking advantage of Wakanda. They're acting as the oppressor, which makes no sense to see and hear people thinking that the motivations were logical for Namor and Talokan people. Anyway, still lots of interesting destabilization, political warfare, commentary going on, which is the, the parts of these movies that I love. But anyways, so then we have, I think we're back with Nakia. Nakia comes up, she saves Shuri and Riri from Talokan, and she kills some soldiers uh, who are guarding them. And Namor is seen grieving his people and the music starts, which, by the way, there is some fucking incredible character music for Namor. Let's, let's, get, let's listen to some of that music right now. So Namor takes his scary ass to Wakanda to weaken their kingdom. And again, you know, we're about to see two disadvantaged and exploited isolated kingdoms pitted against one another. Again, thematically great. I'm not sure people are picking up on that subtext completely, but I do think it's obviously very important and integral to the story and what Black Panther films are trying to say. And, you know, the Talokan basically flood out Wakanda and Namor, for all intents and purposes, kills Queen Ramonda and tells the Wakandan woman to bury their dead and mourn their losses, which again, oddly points the finger at the monarchy and Wakanda people who are dying now. And then again, at the end of the film, because a lot of Wakandan people die at the end of the movie too, which is kind of bad writing to me again, because the audience's finger is now being pointed at Wakanda as if they did something wrong for being isolated or coming to 
the world with uh, the resource of vibranium and talking about how to build bridges and whatnot because they didn't even know about the Talokan people, nor did the Talokan people introduce themselves to Wakanda. So I don't know. The audience now has a justification for seeing Queen Ramonda dead, which makes her death feel unimportant. Like the audience's finger should be at the powers controlling the United Nations, which I don't think we should have to wait until Black Panther 3 to make that clear. Because in this moment where the Talokan people flood out Wakanda and kill Queen Ramonda, there are mostly reactions that I've read and listened to that the Talokan had a point to be pissed and that the Wakandans were trying to escape their responsibility from being an ally. So they should have saw this coming, but no, that's a bad take. Like, yes, it's true that the subtext here is genius of people of color needing to come together and build bridges to disallow powerful empires from controlling the world once again and its resources. But this movie doesn't clearly connect the countries of the UN to Talakan and Wakanda's conflict. So therefore the enemy has to be one of those countries and uh unless someone is picking up on like the I guess the history of that I just can't imagine like like if you're a first time listener my wife and I Kelsey who's my co-host uh she's not here right now she's doing research for her PhD that she's applying for but we're both public school teachers and I'm in the social sciences and Kelsey's in uh literature English and language and um I can't see one of my like students and history, government, econ, whatever it is, watching this film and unpacking the nuances that are just kind of sprinkled in without fully de- being developed. But uh, without going too deep on a tangent, because I'm going to talk more about that, Ramonda, basically, she surprisingly dies. And it's really sad because of how surprising that decision was. Like, I was less sad about her death, and I was more so sad that we'll never see her in a movie again, which I don't know if that's where you want to be as an audience member. You don't want to kind of be out of the story like that. So Shuri becomes the new Black Panther, by using some of, I guess, the DNA from Namor, from his mother's bracelet that he gave Shuri. And she's seeking revenge for her her mother's death. And she goes finally to the ancestral plane, thinking that she'd find her family or potentially, you know, important ancestors to her, but instead finds Killmonger, again, played by Michael B. Jordan. And he's supposed to represent Shuri's vengeful and I guess deeply tortured psyche that he relates to because she's still grieving her brother, much like how Killmonger was grieving his father for his whole life. And now Shuri's dealing with the trauma of losing her mother on top of that. And so she doubles down on the Killmonger philosophy of using the oppressor's tools to compete against the already oppressed. So she wants to kill the telecom people, or I guess specifically Namor, for, I guess, this what they've done to her mother. So Shuri now is Black Panther and Killmonger's gold uniform. And she tells the Wakandan government that she wants, I think she's in Jabari land, and she wants to lead a surprise battle against the Telecon in the Atlantic. And she asks Riri for some help to build technology to fight back against Namor's mutant strength and flying ability by capturing him and drying him out. Because ultimately he's a sort of merman, I guess, that needs water. So Riri in this movie is like kind of the new Q, like how Shuri was with the first Black Panther, which I do like that switch up, that like, that swap. Shuri also gets Okoye and other Dormilaji soldiers like Michaela Cole's character to wear a new tech suit that they created called the Midnight Angel, which is an interesting name. It's a fun suit, but way too Power Rangers for me. I don't know how everybody else feels, but like too bright, uh, which I'll get to in a second. So the war between the Talokan people and the Wakandan people lasts for basically half of the last final act. And we kind of cut to the Talokan people finding out that there's another vibranium detector in the Atlantic and they go to investigate with Namor. 
and they soon find out that it's an ambush and the enemy really is the Wakandan people that are there. And this was, I guess, the plan set out by Shuri. And there is an essentially an all-out war that ensues, which includes Riri as Ironheart with another Power Rangers looking costume. And then you have the Midnight Angels and Shuri is the new Black Panther. And I don't know. Again, I don't know how everyone else feels. I have a take though. No more big fighting sequences in Marvel movies in the bright daytime. Like give us dark, moody, rainy fight sequences. Let us buy into the CGI at the very least in a more like, like cut down the contrast (laughs) and make these battles a little bit more gritty because it just turns into a popcorn Power Ranger type of movie at the end of these films sometimes. And it totally just doesn't make any sense when you have themes as large as Black Panther does. Even if I do like the fighting choreography with the sound mixing, like, I don't know. The one thing I guess that did work was it was tragic as fuck because almost the entire Wakandan military is killed. I don't know if anybody else noticed that. I didn't talk to Kelsey about this, but it seems like there were so many soldiers on top of this ship and then there's only like 20 people at the end, or it seems that way. Maybe they're all in the water. And while they're being killed or I guess pushed into the water, we actually get a pretty good fight between Shuri and Namor, which feels like the fight at the end of Mission Impossible 2 or Spider-Man 2. I don't know why there are so many sequel parallels there, but it is pretty interesting. I love the editing again, and the fight choreography is way better. So at the end of the battle, Shuri gets stabbed, which was really surprising. Um, And honestly, at this point, after seeing Queen Ramonda die, I was like, are a lot of people going to get bodied in this movie? Like what's about to happen? And she almost kills Namor because she kind of, I guess she takes a spear out of her. But instead of taking her full revenge for her mother, Shuri decides to take the peaceful route, which is, I guess, letting him live. And because because she has this like sort of flashback where she remembers the Talokan people and their civilization. And she remembers Wakanda at peace at the beginning or middle of the film. And it's implied that both Namor and Shuri are still dealing with trauma. Um, you know, Namor with his people. Uh, being killed through disease and conflict and slavery and his mother dying or being forced into the ocean and Shuri and her people having to constantly now be exploited by the rest of the world and now her brother and her, her mother dying because of this. And it's really powerful like what they've gone through and, and, and she's having this moment where she's like, this person's my ally. And I thought this is where we would we're going to be shown the CIA or the United Nation countries step into battle, like almost like the end of X-Men First Class, if anybody remembers the end of that film where it's Magneto versus Charles, but really it's the mutants versus their their oppressors. And that thematically was incredible. And I thought they were going to do something similar here where it would have made a lot of sense if these two countries, you know, brutally are murdering one another. And then the powers that be step in, who essentially manufacture this conflict from the the get-go, and they easily take over both civilizations of people. And that would have been a really tragic ending, but it would have been a great setup for the future film in this series. And instead we get this weird come to realization moment for both Shuri and Namor. And they go to stop the all out battle in the Atlantic where tons of people have already, I guess, died. So the ending of this battle and the new alliance between both Wakanda and the Talakan people was maybe emotionally deserved, but thematically it was like really underwhelming and maybe inconsistent with the messaging from the first film. And I guess even some parts of the second film Because the underlying message, again, is that I guess through all of this, it's almost a through line outside of uh, dealing with trauma and grief. Both African-American and Latinx communities need to come together to prevent old, toxic powers from taking over their lives like their ancestors. Like Shuri says, vengeance has consumed us, so we cannot let it consume our people. 
But even that message wasn't clear enough to me. Like we didn't see any outside entity of these two kingdoms come anywhere close to that battle. So to me, it's essential to the audience's understanding of the stakes of the story. And for me to think it's like even close to as good as the first one for the imperialist powers that are talked about so much in the first Black Panther to be actually be shown stepping in, like the ones that are arguing with Queen Ramonda at the beginning of the film in the United Nations. These are the countries that should be stepping in, showing that they have been puppeteering the friction between Wakanda and Telcon. That that would have been timely to our world today, and it would have been so incredible, but instead we kind of get this alliance that isn't fully developed or executed for me because, you know, there's so many so much death and destruction in this movie from both the kingdoms. And I don't know, maybe that's just me, and I don't think it's enough of a realization to be like, oh, they're killing each other because that's what the capitalist empire wants, because they're not trying to include themselves in globalization. They're trying to be isolated. Well, we need them in, involved in our game that we want to play. Like, who the hell is picking that up? I, I just don't see that, how that's possible. And I don't think it's fully executed to even... I feel like I'd be reading into it and giving it the benefit of the doubt to think that it's actually making that comment really well. So... I don't know. Maybe it's like maybe I'm maybe I'm overthinking it, or uh, maybe people got enough of what they wanted out of it. But I think that is at the undercurrent of why people don't love the movie. Or if they don't love it, maybe you love it. That's great if you do. But if you don't, it might be because of this like thematic inconsistency throughout the film. Anyways, the movie ends with Wakanda rebuilding itself and the Talakan dealing with the fact that they'll have to build an alliance for the first time in their history of their empire. And I guess Mbaku is also now the king of Wakanda. So they're going to deal with him and Wakanda, which I'm assuming there's going to be an alliance there. And Shuri goes to Haiti to finally grieve, which was confusing because I thought Shuri was going to be the leader of Wakanda. Or at the very least, I was hoping they'd get rid of the monarchy, which they could in the next film. I have no idea, but that is confusing that it keeps going. And, and this time now it's given to another man. And I think they even call her like, they call her Princess Shuri, I believe. Like when M'Baku is getting off the the plane and trying to challenge the throne. So that was confusing too. I don't know. Even if I love M'Baku and his arc and because he's like an outcast to Wakanda, that's really interesting. It's just odd. The monarchy continues again. And Nakia having that speech instead of Queen Ramonda at the beginning of the second act would have been thematically more rich and timely. Again, I just want to note that because I, I don't want to like rewrite the movie. I hate when people do that. I'm not or like fans of movies or critics or whatever do that. But I do think it would have thematically paid a lot of kind of homage and sincerity to the, the first film, the development of all those characters. So in the film's final moments, we're in Haiti with Shuri and she's shown kind of finding purpose and hope again at Nakia's home. She's sort of finding her religion again, if you will, her ancestors. She's processing loss, which is another through line of this film and how processing loss internally and externally manifests itself. So there was a lot on Letitia Wright's character and her performance, and I thought she was really good, especially her look into the distance. That made me tear up because they were kind of, I don't know, you, you felt all of the emotion in her face. She did a great job. And, you know, the Chavuk of it all, I think, was hitting the audience. And then the film's mid credit scene shows us a young boy, Nakia's son, who introduces himself to Shuri as Toussaint, who are his, I guess, Wakanda name, Prince T'Challa, which was obviously, like, historically really cool and interesting. And and emotional and theaters really bought in emotionally. But I think that would have, you know, maybe created an interesting dynamic again at the beginning of the film and a motivation for Shuri to protect Wakanda and for Nakia to really explain how the monarchy needs to fall. Maybe that she doesn't want her son to be involved in this unstable government, even though he has a bloodline. Uh, anyways, like much like the geopolitical conflict, maybe in the next movie, they can do all that. I don't know. The movie was interested in 
other things. Like it was interested in mourning Chadwick Boseman, which I totally understand. And it succeeded at that. And it wasn't interested as much in fully developing a deconstruction of monarchy and imperialism, which honestly makes it sort of impressive because it's legitimately a good movie that is just touching on themes from a first movie instead of, I think, uh, elevating those themes even further and fully addressing them. And it kind of gets to do both. It kind of gets to just talk about the themes from the first film and maybe build uh, an idea of what they're going to do for the third film while mourning the very real death of a, a very iconic person in Chadwick Boseman, which they did successfully do. Okay, that was Black Panther Wakanda Forever. A very good movie. Let's talk phase four of Marvel quickly, though, outside of the TV shows, just the films, because I want to I want to try to rank these movies. I think it would be interesting and also give us some perspective of what the last year and a half, two years have looked like in Marvel. So phase four, starting with Black Widow in 2021. Then we have Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings in 2021. Eternals to end 2021. Then Spider-Man No Way Home, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, Thor Love and Thunder, and now Black Panther Wakanda Forever. So I'm going to rank these seven. No one get angry at me. Leave us a review actually in Apple to tell us your top seven. I'll read them on our next podcast if you do that. Number seven of Phase 4 of Marvel is The Eternals. I don't have a lot to say here. Um, Chloe Zhao, I think, had a lot to do in this movie. I just don't know if this was a good idea to even get this script greenlit because it adds so much new content for people to consume it's asking too much of the audience basically and has nothing really to do with the the directing it's just too much story it's not Zhao's fault number six we have black widow i actually really liked this movie more than most people i thought it was concentrated and the timeline of it all was really what made the movie a weird experience like just the idea that came after you know she's dead which is confusing uh scarlett johansson did a really great job Plus the pandemic and the fact it was really only streaming kind of hurt the movie, I think, a little bit. Number five, I think this is going to surprise a lot of people, but unless you've heard our podcast on it, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. The Wanda arc is pretty fucked up in this movie. And I think this film really didn't care about the way Doctor Strange connects to the MCU at large, which I thought was interesting, but it didn't take enough shots for me to actually think it did anything singular besides some weird Raimi stuff that... It's cool for a lot of people, um, so I respect it for that, for being an oddball of the bunch. But I really didn't like the way Wanda was written as this sort of MacGuffin to move Strange's story forward. At number four, we have Thor Love and Thunder. I think Christian Bale as Gore is going to be the most underrated character in the MCU for a few years. Really, he's a, he's a terrifying character with a great arc. And I think Taika Waititi satirizing religion and stakes in a movie about gods is really smart and he took a big shot uh, uh and i and i was more interested like we did a whole pod on this movie and kelsey and i were more interested in praising him for it and most people shit on him for weeks about it so i don't know i like the idea he's basically parroting everything semi-serious about thor ragnarok which is a movie i like and i don't love it like most people do and I thought that was a pretty baller move. Like he had the cynicism uh, that Thor needs, like I think Watiti does. And, you know, as a character that's lived for a long time, it's interesting to find the funny elements in that story rather than trying to take it too seriously. 
And number three, we have Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. This was the most surprising for me because it's the first movie of, I'm sure, a series of Shang-Chi films. And it's just so well made. I really felt happy watching it the way I did with the first Guardians of the Galaxy or, or honestly, the original Black Panther. And I can't wait to see more of these. I loved all the performances, the relationships, the lore that was built so quickly. I just bought in really fast. And I saw this one at home too. I wish I could have saw it on the big screen. Number two, we have today's film, Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Maybe that will be surprising to listeners since I was maybe negative. I don't think I was too negative. But again, just to repeat myself, this is a good movie. I like it. It's a you know, $300 million movie that had big ideas. So I held it to those standards. I'm, I'm excited to see what's next from this team. And I'm hoping Coogler you know, keeps directing this franchise or the series in the franchise. But I'm also hoping he does something outside the MCU next. I think that would be interesting. I've, I've heard some people say that he should direct Namor's next film and the Telecom People's film. But I'd like to actually see an up-and-coming Latin American director get their debut in the MCU with uh, a Namor movie. That would be interesting. And number one, I have Spider-Man No Way Home, which, you know, this is one of the best theater experiences of any Marvel movie I've ever had. And while it doesn't come close to the interesting lofty themes of Black Panther, the sequel, or the first movie, this Spider-Man film is just a really well-made movie with so many people's childhoods at stake, and they're really connected in a seamless way. It's one of my favorite MCU inventions while simultaneously maybe ruining a lot of the stakes in the MCU because the multiverse is sort of taking the emotional weight and stakes out of all of their stories, and I think that's what's making all these movies a little bit awkward. There's something contradictory about the every movie and its plot since the multiverse has been is expanded. And ultimately, I think, you know, phase four really being about how we deal with our past and reflecting on our decisions or regrets is a pretty sad phase considering it's all happened during a global pandemic. I'm excited for what's next, though. I'll read these seven off again, just so everyone's on the same page with me here. At number seven, I have Internals. Number six, Black Widow. Number five, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Number four, Thor Love and Thunder. Number three, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Number two, Black Panther Wakanda Forever. And number one, Spider-Man No Way Home. So go ahead and leave an Apple review of your top seven, and we'll read those on our next pod. I'm interested to see what everybody thinks. Please don't shit on mine too much. <laughs> um, and also, that reminds me, please, we put in a lot of work in on the pod. If you don't mind, can you just put a little bit of work on your end by giving us five stars on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your pods? Uh, that would be a big help. I don't know how the algorithm gods work, but maybe you can help us. All right, so what's up next on our podcast? We have some special guests coming on to talk about their newest film, The Menu. Really excited for that conversation. Kelsey and I saw an early screening of that a few weeks ago. That film comes out this week, and I think people will love uh, hearing from those special guests from the movie. We have some more surprises too, but I'll keep those quiet for right now. Okay, so today was the extra credits of Black Panther Wakanda Forever. I hope you enjoyed this deep dive. I recommend going to see this movie again in IMAX because that's how I'll be seeing it a third time. So that's a confirmation that you know I liked it. <laughs> All right, this has been Trey. Everybody have a nice whatever part of your day it is. Peace. <laughs> yeah,